people that are too precious about their ideas, I as an investor wouldn't wouldn't bet on them because what you gain in pressure testing your own ideas, even in your own internal development and ability to communicate it, uh, far outweighs the risk of idea theft. All right, welcome back or welcome to the Finding Mastery Podcast. I'm Michael Gervais and by trade and training, a sport and performance psychologist, as well as the co-founder of Compete to Create. And the whole idea behind these conversations is to learn from people who are on the path of mastery, who have committed their life efforts towards mastery of self and mastery of craft. And we want to better understand not only their insights about their craft, which is good because we can hopefully apply those in our own life, but at the deeper level, we want to understand how they've approached mastery of self. How do they use their own inner life and their mind and the whole thing to be able to explain and make sense of the world around them. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Bubs Naturals. Like you, I am mindful about what I put into my body. So for me, it usually comes down to ingredients and simplicity. The shorter the list, the better. And that's why I've been loving Bubs Naturals. Bubs creates products with high quality, all natural ingredients that are designed to help us get after the adventures in life. For years, I've been a huge fan of their Hydrate or Die electrolyte mix. I mean, that's a fun title for a product, isn't it? It only has six total ingredients. It's packed with electrolytes. I love the taste. No added sugar, no artificial flavors, none of that stuff. It's great for post-workout recovery. That's when I use it. And I also use it during long periods of travel, which I've been doing a lot lately. And so thank you for the hydration here. And a ton of athletes that I know swear by them too. They're currently in just about every MLB locker room. They work closely with the Red Sox, the Yankees, I know the Rangers, Cardinals, Diamondbacks, and, and many more, of course. I'd love for you to go check them out. I think they're doing a really nice job. Just head to bubsnaturals.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout for 20% off your first purchase. Again, that's bubsnaturals, B-U-B-S naturals, Dot com slash finding mastery with a code finding mastery for 20% off your first purchase. Finding mastery is brought to you by Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science informed treatments for erectile dysfunction, ED, hair loss, weight loss, and more. Health struggles like ED are common, but they can be hard to talk about when it comes to finding a solution. That's why Hims has been a game changer for so many men. The entire process is 100% online, and if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms, no pharmacy visits. Plus, you can manage your plan directly on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. So, if you or a loved one has been struggling with ED, I really want to encourage you to go check out HIMSS. And I know ED often has a psychological component as well. So be sure that you're stacking some psychological best practices into your daily routine as well. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash finding mastery. That's hymns, H-I-M-S dot com slash finding mastery for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash finding mastery. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash EOF 
for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Now, this week's conversation is with Raja Deer. He's the co-founder and the co-CEO of Seed Health, a microbial sciences company pioneering applications of bacteria to impact human and environmental health. Okay, some of you might be really familiar with the microbiome. And those who aren't, let me share a brief summary that I think really ties it up well. And it's from Harvard School of Public Health. And as, as many of you know that I've been fascinated with the microbiome for a long time and its impacts not on health, but also for performance. So here's what they have to say. Picture a bustling city on a weekday morning. The sidewalks flooded with people rushing to get to work or to appointments. Now imagine this at a microscopic level and you have an idea of what the microbiome looks like inside our bodies, consisting of trillions of microorganisms also called microbiota or microbes, of thousands of different species. These include not only bacteria, but fungi, parasites, and viruses. In a healthy person, these, what we call bugs, coexist peacefully with the largest numbers found in the small and large intestines, but also throughout the body. The microbiome is even labeled a supporting organ because it plays so many key roles in promoting the smooth daily operations of the human body. And so this is where Raja's company, Seed, comes into play. Seed partners with leading scientists to translate breakthrough science into live biotherapeutic and innovations for consumer health with a portfolio targeting conditions where bacteria can become or replace the primary standard of care. Cool as that. Talk about disruption. And Seed develops scientifically validated next-gen probiotics with a mission to bring much-needed precision, efficacy, and education to the global probiotics market. It's really a wild west out there right now for probiotics. And so Raja believes that you know, the magic happens at the intersection of technology, systems biology, and translational science. And he's got a unique way of thinking. And he follows those thoughts with action. And that's what this conversation is really about. How do we take an idea powerful enough to change the world for the better and turn it into a reality? So with that, let's jump right into this week's conversation with Raja Deer. Raja, how are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, thank you for being here. It's hard to complain looking out this window here at the Pacific Ocean. I know. I mean, we are blessed. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, I've been following what you've been doing for a while, and I've been fascinated with microbiomes and the health, the gut-brain access for a long time. And so I want to definitely hit squarely in this conversation about what you've come to learn and what the insights that you have to help people live better. And I also want to start in the proper order, like what got you to do, want to do this, right? Maybe you're just a businessman. That want that found this like to be an open market that's unexploited, or maybe you really love this industry. I'm not sure yet. So, before we pull on that thread, take us back to early life. What was it like growing up? Whatever age you want to start us with. Uh, let's see. So, when the sperm first connected with the egg, there was a flash of zinc, 
And uh, that was the moment of inception. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> that's Your dry humor is coming out already. Okay, good. And so, all right. So where did that sperm and egg happen? Uh, both my father and my mother come from a lineage of uh, North Indian base Himalayan uh, ancestry. I got a pretty cosmopolitan and international upbringing. My, my mom grew up basically for the first 10 years of her life on a, on a ship. Uh, my grandfather was the, at a very young age, the captain of an international shipping vessel. And so my mom grew up in the captain's quarters and had visited a 50 or a hundred or so odd countries before the age of 10 and all kinds of crazy stories that that type of exposure has, but also imparts a sense of, um, comfort with solitude and, uh, curiosity and tolerance to uncertainty and the unknown, which I think was passed on to me. Um, my father is really analytical. He's an engineer. And so a lot more of that type of rational thinking and um, taking systems and tweaking them and thinking of things as uh, able to be modified. I think I got a lot from my father. But uh, if you ask them, they'll say that I was a anarchist as a child. Um, most of my belief systems were self-taught. Uh, I found indoctrination to be quite onerous and um, that really got to take full flight during my high school years when my mom forced me and then I became a voracious participant of, uh, of debate. And uh, by the end of my senior year, I was am among the top and by some rankings, the top debater in the country, um, which enabled me to get a full ride to undergrad, which... If you ask entrepreneurs, there's kind of a line of thinking in entrepreneurship about whether entrepreneurs are born or made. And I cast my my vote in the entrepreneurs are made hat because if you if you surround yourself with a lot of really smart, of course you have to have a base level of aptitude. But if you surround yourself with a lot of really smart people and you remove a lot of the typical constraints like. Uh, going into debt for college or needing to pick a major that has a certain salary basis or um, paying your way through school, for example, um, your mind, you, you have your base level of stress is so much lower. It's, it's in a Maslow's hierarchical type of way. And I think that you can incubate. And I mean, I don't think that we, we build adults anymore. I think we build like adolescents for a very long period of time that need to be incubated in these progressively larger nests. And uh, one such example, I think, is the American university system, which if if done well, can be really positive. If done poorly, can be um, like a, a very fertile ground for distraction. So I'll pause there, but that's a little bit of a wind in, I guess. See, we go from zinc <laughs> to extended wombs. Okay. All right. Um, and what does it mean to grow up in northern india like what what is that from a cultural perspective what does that mean yeah i visited a couple of times my son my grandparents are still there and um oh you weren't born there i was not no i grew up okay. in it i grew up in the suburbs of atlanta okay so mom and dad moved to the u.s yeah uh but my mom was uh early 20s my dad mid mid 20s okay and then so you grew up in atlanta oh yeah Okay. And yeah. that was suburbs, you said? Yeah, for the most part. Very small, sleepy town. Um, for the, I, I pro, Most people from that area don't really ever leave that area. But for, for some strange reason, three of the top 10 debate schools in the country happen to be concentrated in like a 20-mile radius in, in central 
central northern Georgia. So I it was really my ticket out. I mean, I spent summers in different universities at, at debate institution every week or two, even since starting since I was 13 or 14 years old. I was traveling all over the country to tournaments at Northwestern, Berkeley, Harvard, and um, were I mean, you, were you, if there was different groups, this is me trying to oversimplify something. There's an athletic group. There's a drama arts group. There's the, um, uh, nerd group, you know, there are, I'm not sure what the, the goth group, <laughs> there's the risk taking kind of whatever group, you know, what, what group did you, to oversimplify your early years, where'd you fit in? Uh, so the nerd, the nerd group, but of the nerds that also were confident enough to uh, be class clowns a little bit. Okay, yeah, all right. So you had a little bit of off-axis humor to you. It wasn't like you knew you were the academic. Yeah, I wasn't shy though about it. So if someone didn't get my joke, it was kind of just like, well, fuck them. <laughs> because, <laughs> because well, I just would still go for it. I mean, is my point? Like, yeah, okay. I wouldn't uh, censor myself based off of. Uh, what I thought the audience around me was. And I think that has helped. Okay. So at a young age, that level of confidence can flirt easily with hubrism, arrogance. Like it can get, you know, as you're trying to sort it out, were you more on the quiet confidence or more on that hubristic come try me? I was very much on the hubristic overconfident side. And as a result, I was, uh, uh, checked, a couple of times and my wings definitely got roasted. They didn't burn off entirely, but I, they got, they got a little warm. What does that mean? Uh, the, uh, fly too high, your wings burn off reference. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So tell me what that, what actually happened? Uh, what does that mean to you is what I want to ask. I'm trying to think of, of a specific, I mean, you kind of create you create a trail of skeptics or you force yourself to have to deliver more than if you under promised and over delivered and i think a couple breakout narratives will come to me as i as i think about it but if conceptually it was more of the um i i guess if you don't def if you don't see failure as uh if you don't activate your avoidance systems towards failure in a traditional sense, you become a little bit more tolerant of, uh, you know, things not necessarily going the way that you first anticipated they would be. Okay. So definitely not rigid. You know, you're in, you have a flexible framework to you that you, even from an early age. Um, and when you say you've been roasted, your wings have been roasted. What I was thinking is that there was some sort of hardship story where you fronted somebody in a public place and, you know, you didn't clip your wings, but um, definitely made it known that, hey, sit in place. So this, this might be even more conceptual or, or meta of a point, but as a testament to how little attention I paid about external cues, those things as singular, isolated, transformative events wouldn't even register in my memory. Uh, I'm sure if I really tried, I could find something, but it's not, I, I, it's not so linear, I think, in a way. It's, what, does, what does occupy your memory? Gosh, I, uh, I'm, I'm obsessed with biology. I love biology. So more facts, Fa facts, but ways that, uh, like ways that integrate into, um, into shaping worldviews. And so I don't, I, I, my brother's a doctor. And so I always found the medical school texts to be overly descriptive and detailed in nature. And certainly it's not about cramming your brain with, uh, Latin words or, progressions that you don't ever need. But I very much try to 
learn the essential or the the vertebrae of a number of different disciplines to anchor and build knowledge around. I'm I'm a firm believer that if you don't assimilate a fact or some information immediately into a a web or a tree of knowledge that you're constructing inside your own mind, uh, that it's pretty useless information because it's not it's it lacks context. And so uh, those are the types of things that I try to build on, whether it be in physics, whether it be in biology, whether it be in, you know, chemistry in some instances, um, environmental sciences. But I generally lean, even um, uh, psychiatry and psychology, I take a pretty deep interest in like, um, you know, maps or patterns that people uh, start building in their head, which then they use as their basis for navigating the, the world around them. So um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if that answers it, but I, I, I really like to encourage people and myself to, to, um, adopt what I call an essentialist, uh, worldview, which is, you know, nothing more, but make sure you get all the bases and then cast a pretty wide net because, um, you don't, there's the, the more things that you're pretty good at understanding, um, the richer the world, uh, f- appears and feels as you, as you work your way through it. Formal education for you or more self-engineering? Yeah, uh, most of my tech- scientific and technical nature is um, is autodidactic, but I do have a degree in philosophy and biology. I finished undergrad in uh, three or so years and then uh, used the last year to just incubate a couple ideas on my scholarship. Okay. And it sounds like, you know, you, you're using language that is refreshing, you know, the vertebrae across disciplines, you know, or principles um, of interest. It's a really cool phrase. And it sounds like what you're trying to do is create some sort of string theory for the things that interest you most. And you, I'm interested in your model, right? You're talking about your psychological framework. So let's take an example. Can you think of a time that was incredibly difficult for you? Look, entrepreneurship isn't uh, anyone who gl- glorifies entrepreneurship. It's hard. Yeah. It's uncertain. It's difficult. There's difficult decisions that involve people and money and product development. It's hard. What's a specific difficult time yeah. that you've had? So prior to founding Seed, which is my current company, um, I was uh, the co-founder of a food tech company called Vital Amine. And um, we had a pretty simple goal we wanted to uh, isolate micronutrients from plant plant material and um, in in the perfect embodiment of it we would find plant biomass that was non inedible um, and and basically valorize or salvage non inedible which means that was uh inedible inedible yeah. non inedible would mean edible, edible probably okay. yeah i'm sure everything's edible okay. uh, to some extent but non nutritive okay non nutritive uh, yeah okay and, um, you know, I've, I, the microbiome has always been my passion, uh, or at least since 2006, when I read a paper that showed that you, and this was before the field of microbiome science even was a real, was a, was a mainstream or a real area of science. And, um, you know, they, this was a pretty landmark paper. You took the gut microbiome from an obese mouse and a lean mouse and you switched them and their entire shape changed in, in a very short period of time. And so I knew that this or gene therapy were going to be areas that I always wanted to get back to, but um, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to do bench work. Okay, hold on. So I I don't know if you're going to answer the difficult moment because I was trying to get to your map, but let me stay here for a minute. Is that when you read that piece of research 
on the biome and it was a fecal implant, right? Yeah. So they took the fecal matter of one and switched it around and, and injected into a, a healthy uh, rat. And then all of a sudden that rat's composition changed. Changed overnight. And I remember the first time I read it, I was like, what is this? What happened for you when you read that bit of research? I mean, look, it's, it's your, as a young investigator, it's your dream to find these. And, and this builds on the systems thing where we started talking about, you know, to find these features that fundamentally change the way you orient yourself around a discipline. Like in this case, it changes the way we think about the nature of biology, right? Like we're more than our genes. Um, we're more than our dietary inputs. The same t identical twins uh, could for the most part, go through life the exact same way and still have very different outcomes um, based on these organisms that cohabitate with us. And uh, I found it, it checked all the boxes for me as an area that I wanted to, um, you know, continue to see through. It had philosophical uh, questions about the nature of self. It had deep uh, scientific and technical uh, utility and applications for human health. Um, it had an opportunity for optimization um, it gave agency to things that you traditionally would deem in, um, you know, inoperable or unable to be modified or adjusted. And so, um, and, and, and lastly, it was starting to draw interest from not just one field. I always thought the way that we broke down the medical sciences was a little strange and, and actually very unscientific. So, so I don't, I don't know why a doctor should only focus on your nose, ear, and throat other than the fact that they have proximity to each other or you know it's um it's it, it's a really strange way of or, organizing ourselves around body site and so here you found something that came in with a and bulldozed that wall down and you had immunologists you had microbiologists you had um neurologists you had gastroenterologists psychologists. psychiatrists and psychologists mm -hmm. as well um people ecns like coming and working all together on the same problems and 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 that had a lot of technical and big data and um, looking at patterns. And it, it just was such a rich field that uh, I, I kind of knew, maybe not today, but you know, at some point in, at some point in my lifetime, hopefully within the next decade, this thing is going to really heat up. And that moment for the field happened in 2015. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Apollo Neuro. I am really excited about what Apollo Neuro is building. If you haven't had the chance yet, I highly recommend that you go check out the conversation I had with our co-founder, Dr. David Rabin, on the podcast. It is well worth a listen. Unlike traditional wearables that simply track your biometrics, Apollo is doing it totally differently. Apollo Neuro is designed to actively improve your health by enhancing sleep, relaxation, energy, and focus. So how's it work? Developed by neuroscientists and physicians, Apollo delivers these soothing little vibrations, they call them Apollo vibes, that are like music your body can feel. More rapid vibrations help to improve your energy and focus, while the slower vibrations help to promote rest and digest in your body. And the best part for me, they're grounded in good science. Apollo has been tested by thousands of users in clinical and real-world trials. I would love for you to give it a go. It's making a meaningful difference in my life. And because you're listening to this podcast, you can receive an exclusive 15% off an Apollo wearable. Just head to apolloneuro.com. 
com slash finding mastery and use the code finding mastery at checkout. This is an exclusive offer. It's only for us here at finding mastery. So be sure to use the code at checkout. Again, that's Apollo, A-P-O-L-L-O, Apollo Neuro, N-E-U-R-O, Apollo Neuro.com slash finding mastery, or use the code finding mastery at checkout for 15% off your purchase. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Cured. If there's one big rock to get into the container when it comes to dialing in your wellness, one thing that stands out among the rest is sleep. Whether it be improved physical health, mental health, performance, creativity, quality sleep is the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the science that supports that. And if you're struggling with sleep or you just want to dial it in a bit further, Cured's Zen formula just might be a great solution for you. Zen is a nootropic that is formulated by Cure's very own in-house clinical herbalist, and it contains a blend of reishi mushroom, ashwagandha, chamomile, passionflower, and broad-spectrum CBD. That is a powerhouse combination. Zen could be a great little addition to your bedtime routine. They recommend taking it about 45 minutes before hopping into bed to let the reishi and ashwagandha and chamomile and the CBD do their thing. So right now, because you're listening to this podcast, Cured is hooking you up with a great offer. You can try Zen for 20% off when you visit curednutrition.com slash findingmastery and you use the code findingmastery at checkout. That's Cured, C-U-R-E-D, Cured, nutrition.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout to save 20%. You're a systems thinker, first and foremost, right? And a couple of times I've asked, like, because I'm trying to understand, like, how you, what's it, what it's like to be inside you, like the thinking patterns, the emotional states, the way that aha moments or challenges take place. And you're very cognitive. You think through things probably clearly and quickly. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. So one of your assets is cognition metacognition even you know the log rolling effect where you're able to watch how logs roll on each other yeah. and not be necessarily the log yep <laughs> right okay and so so then you spot a trend that sits across other disciplines cross pollinates across many disciplines and not a trend but a bit of information sorry and you go i'm going to invest my life efforts towards this but it's i would thinking about you right now you probably didn't chip all in you don't seem like this uh, aggressively, you know, emotionally uh, risk taker. It's like I'm imagining that you thought about it for a bit, but I don't want to presuppose anything. So when you when you found this information and it made some interesting connections, what did you do then? Walk me through that arc, you know, the main frames of that arc. Yeah. So this is, this will give you some clues into my arc as well. And it also doubles as advice for budding entrepreneurs. You immediately seek out, uh, find the best in the field and learn what they do uh, in a way where if you had a conversation with them, they would leave that conversation, not being able to stop thinking about that conversation. And that's kind of the outcome or the goal and then the alignment that you need to do to make that a reality will give you the clues kind of to 
the individual tactical steps you have to learn you have to do so much you have to it's not just about cramming knowledge it's about explaining it it's about innovating having a new approach um, certainly you have to internalize their work uh, but you also have to be able to then connect it or contextualize or add to it in a way that um, augments their skill set so that's okay hold on i love that thought I, I bet this happens for you a bit it happens for me too much is that i'll get emails that say hey love your work i'd love to pick your brain I love your work. I'd love to take you to coffee. I'm like, wait, I mean, that's, I don't, I'm running out of time to yeah. like do the, like <laughs> the deep, meaningful stuff is like, I'm trying to figure it out and I don't want to sound rude, but that's not going to work for me because of, I guess the interest and the, the bandwidth. Be memorable. If you don't invest, God, the amount of free, both me and my co-founder have done so much free shit for other people just to build ourselves into the place we are today this like quid pro quo type of, or like one-sided um, relationship with with people that you want information or knowledge or life experience from, it, it just isn't rational. It doesn't make any sense. You have to probably give a lot more. Um, that's why, you know, up until recent times, these things were done under mentors or under tutors or apprenticeships. I mean, the Which whole- Which took a long time to nurture those relationships to, before you get knighted as an apprentice. And- or you got to pay your way into an institution. You got to earn some hoops that way. Yeah. I don't mean just paying in a crass way, but universities are businesses, yeah. you know, and you've got to have an academic, this, that, and the other, and a track record and have money to get into, yeah. you know, research institutions. Okay. So, so I love that insight, like create a conversation where the other person is left stimulated. Okay. What else, what else happens so that's what you did. That's the first thing you did. In, like when you saw in, that bit of research. Any new project in my that I've ever started, uh, that's the first place that I go. So I'll put a list together of the people that are the best in the field, and sometimes it'll be years before I actually even reach out to them. But knowing that this venture or this idea or this project won't be successful until I can hang with at least any combination of between two to five of the people that are on that list. Okay. Pause here. Where do you go next? Do you start to research their work? Do you start to read? Do you write? Do you, how do you categorize or systematize your information and where does it live? Is it, do you have a wiki page? Like what do you do? Yeah. So I start with passive learning and if you have trouble with recall, then I would advise going straight to active learning. But for me, uh, passive learning is kind of like, the first, it's like the charcoal filter and like reverse osmosis. It like gets the big, it like separates out the, the big stuff, um, part of part that you, that you don't need to go down into anymore. And you just kind of see what sticks after a certain period of time that probes what your next level of investigation is. In other words, is. you're going to read an article and you're going to say, oh, these are the big boulders I'm interested. Then you yeah. follow those threads. Yeah. And then you chase those all the way down. So I do, yeah. I do start with passive learning, although I've heard that's some people have different approaches to that. Um, from, because you mentioned active recall, which, um, did you say active recall, active, a active act learning. If you have ch challenges with recall. with recall, because recall is a tricky thing for people. And you would probably recognize this is that it's actually one of the variables for intelligence testing. And it doesn't mean that, um, you're dumb if you can't recall, but people have different aptitudes and abilities for recall. So if you struggle with recall, there's mnemonic devices and strategies to help you engage in a way that makes the recall easier. You can also work on recall itself. There's, a it doesn't change though. Really? Yeah. So it's, it's considered a, um, 
Fixed. Well, yeah. It, so intelligence is a relatively fixed, hmm. you know, uh, model. And so it doesn't change over time, but you can amplify hmm. your weaknesses and amplify your strengths as well. But so mnemonic devices, creating, um, all different types of systems. You can look all the, like there's 12 of them. You can look them up online. Okay, good. So that, so you go passive, then you get active I, then or you I, stay passive. Yeah. And then I go into, um, uh, so an exercise that I use, actually, it sounds a little weird is, um, I imagine that like, and, and it actually happens when like an investor or, um, an advisor or business partner asks, re, asks you in an email or kind of a fire drill, uh, how you would explain the most interesting or relevant points with kind of like a plan, like with some thought leadership to it. And so it's an exercise I do a lot. Like if you go to my drafts folder in my inbox, I have like hundreds and hundreds of drafts that I've just written to nobody. Um, just because when I imagine there being someone on the receiving end of it, I synthesize and I uh, distill down what it, what it is that I've just learned into into ways that would um, allow me to be effective in communicating it or also, uh, cut, cut it down into the, into the minimum, um, viable units of communication. How often do you distill something that you've read into an email or just let it kind of permeate in the background for a bit? Don't do it too close together. Otherwise you'll be thinking as you read, you'll be thinking about translating instead of reading. Um, and so it's, it's better if you just, the more time you can, depending on your recall abilities, the more time you can put between it, the better. Because uh, you want to train yourself to read something, learn it, understand it, always stop and chase a word you don't understand because then you won't integrate it. So if there's words or concepts like um, don't listen, and my, my advice would be don't listen to people that say just stick to it, make a list and go afterwards and look up all the things you didn't know. I mean, learning is active combat. And so... You can you can you can take information in passively, which just means that you're not writing or doing anything else, and you know, um, jotting things down. Take take notes for sure. Uh, but always always back to the vertebrae concept. You have to find a notch to hang it around, or you have to find a solar system with a star that has enough gravity that it can then go enter into its orbit. Otherwise, it's just going to be drifting. Li- listlessly through space. I love it. I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks and podcasts as well. And I can't do it unless I've got my computer out, my phone out or a notepad. I'm more digital than on paper, but it just seems like as soon as I learn something and it's like, Oh, that's a gem. I want to see it. I want to integrate it into my own thoughts. So that's something that you're doing as well. Yeah. Okay. So those are two steps you got. What else are you doing to make sense of things? Hmm. I've been going on a lot of podcasts recently and talking about them. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah that's a, I think it's an interesting response because when you can put your own words to somebody else's principles and yeah. concepts and you're able to pull on two, three, four different other ideas, then it starts to become something uniquely yours, you know, and it's a synthesis that makes sense to maybe, maybe birth a new idea. Okay. So let's go back to the, that first research article. You go, Oh, this is interesting. You found some folks, you did some reading and some research to be proficient in their domain, and then you do what next? Then I'm ready to, then you go and uh, battle test your ideas. With whom? With the, with the experts, with, I, basically anybody that has a, I mean, don't be a, 
too strict on how you pressure test those ideas. So another nugget to insert here is people that are too precious about their ideas. Um, I, as an investor, wouldn't wouldn't bet on them because so much of this stuff is on ed- what you gain in pressure testing your own ideas, even in your own internal development and ability to communicate it, uh, far outweighs the risk of I- idea theft. I mean, unless it's something that's so specialized or particular or like, like well, use, palla- pu- use palladium for this instead of... Uh, you know, some other rare earth metal because it's, then it's something that's stealable. But if it's like, Hey, I have an idea for um, a microbiome company that looks at a lot of different organ sites and has partially therapeutics and starts with this and this, this, and this, and this is going to be the first FDA trial. And I mean, no one's going to really, you, you talk to investors, talk to uh, scientists, talk to leaders in the field, talk to people that have failed before. Um, I, I don't, I'm very precious about my time. And so if I can immediately tell out someone's not going to add value, I'll be a little, I won't be rude, but I'll just cut the discussion short and walk away. But I'll get, get a lot of opportunities for like a, a bite, you know, or a hook. And sometimes you'll see someone come in with something fresh or something new or perspective that's good. So go wide with it. Um, but don't feel compelled to, um, give everybody the whole hour, for example, or give everybody the entire time of day, but then, <laughs> then you pressure test it. Um, okay, you, cool. you battle test it, you harden it, you refine it. Um, and then ultimately the final test is going back to the experts, get, get it, get into those rooms and have a, a clear plan on what you want to do next. So I'll give you an example. Um, so now at our company, we work with probably the, at this stage, we, have either on our advisory board or as chief scientists in different divisions of our company, um, 60 to 70% of the top scientists in the entire microbiome field. And in each one of our individual tracks, we have the expert, the, the usually the leading scientist that's never commercialized their work before, that's published more on the subject than, than anybody else. Um, and, uh, you know, is it, th- these are highly fundable, expert-driven uh businesses now and it's you if you if you want to be successful you also can't make yourself be um the core pressure point between success and failure and so you distribute you almost like when you're building a a structure you distribute the risk across a number of very um validated uh pressure points and then you and then you scale it up beautiful do you on your how many people are on your advisory board 15 now 15 and then what is the nature of, do you consider yourself more of an entrepreneur or a science investigator i would consider myself more on this at this stage it's almost all my time is spent designing clinical trials publishing papers um, evaluating new technical research designing experiments okay so you're on the science side yeah okay and then because i'm going to ask you like a um, I want to get into the science in a minute, but I was, I want to ask you about your advisory role. When you have those experts, what is the, it sounds so crass, but what is the give get? So you're giving them a community and in return, what is it that they're getting? You're actually not giving them a community. If they're good at what they do, then they usually know or are far more connected and integrated into the scientific um, community than anything you could ever offer them, which is what makes this so hard because the only things you can give these people are money, stock, um, or in some instances, I guess a path to commercialize their work. 
but all three are dependent. I mean, for the at least I can only speak on the science side, and and I think it break in some areas like uh, robotics and computer science and clean energy. Um, you find a lot more commercially oriented investigators, but when you come to biology and material sciences and chemistry and physics is the worst. I mean, these people, the, the the best in the field, really don't don't care about money. Um, their their mindset, if you want to port transport into their portal, um, I mean, these people are driven by thinking by coming up with something that has never been thought of or done before and they're so raw on kind of the end of the create something from nothing spectrum um that sometimes you'll find like a, a couple of the like powerhouses from like the broad institute at harvard for example and mit is and some some stanford departments are really good at commercializing but most scientists are more driven by doing good science than they are about making money so it's very hard you, you really don't have anything to offer other than saying, look, you've now gotten a chance to get to know me. You see what we're doing. You see that we're advancing the field. So you, you have to align your interests with theirs, that the work that we're doing is accelerating the pace of the field itself. And if we don't do and fund this work, um, it probably won't get done for a very long period of time, certainly not within academia. And so most of the relationships in our, our, in our scientific community are with people that say, um, have a, have a, have a ton of trust in me that something's not going to break down along the way that their name or, uh, research isn't used, uh, incorrectly. Um, but ultimately the thing that the, the, the best thing you can offer somebody back in return, um, certainly you should, you should, that's what advisory shares are for is to give them some kind of st some stake in the, uh, in the, in the company. But, um, the best thing you can offer them is, a is an innovative application of their own work that they may not have thought about before. Mm. There you go. Very cool. Okay. You know, I've been part of some advisory boards and they're exactly that for me though. They're a community that I normally wouldn't be part of because I'm looking for communities that have multiple diverse yeah. worldviews, scientifically uh, informed views. And so those are the fun conversations and people that I love to be around. Yeah. And so that's the part that I think when community, yeah. but I hear your point, which is now they've got, I've got my own community, but I, I want to be part of that other community yeah. as well. Okay. Science is a community. Science is probably, I mean, the whole concept of peer review, it, it, in some ways, science is the most uh, foolproof community because the whole concept is that until your peers think that valid validate what you've can done up. yeah now it breaks down a lot there's a lot of stuff that sneaks through peer review and there's a lot of politics and a surprising amount of um uh the same principles that you find of introducing bias and in other disciplines when taken advantage of it can actually be worse because the it becomes a trojan horse yeah. where yeah. your bias yeah. now gets into a worldview it shouldn't under the pretense of being objective but when it's done well it's the most uh, remarkable structure for a community. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AG1. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know what a big supporter I am of AG1. And it's almost been for a decade now. So I love what they're doing. I, it's something I drink just about every day. And part of their marketing slogan is that it's a nutritional insurance program. And like, I just, I love that. That's the way it feels for me. And that's because each serving of AG1 delivers a dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and so much more. It is a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. I like to take it first thing in the morning, which is also recommended for optimal nutrient absorption. 
And so what I do is I just fill up my shaker, add some cold water, a scoop of AG1, and a little squeeze of lemon. I shake it up and I'm ready to go. Or if I'm in a rush or you know I'm, I'm ripping and running on the road, I just grab an AG1 travel pack to take with me. I feel great after drinking it, not only because of the nutritional insurance idea, but there's just a there's a sustenance that happens when I drink it. And I love recommending it to friends and family because I know AG1 is formulated with science-informed rigor and the highest quality in mind. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. And that's why I've loved partnering with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, I want to encourage you to give AG1 a try and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and also get five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Again, that's drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AquaTrue. We all know how important hydration is to performance and recovery and well-being, but it's not just about how much you drink. The quality of your water plays a big role. And if you're like me and you don't fully trust tap water, and I think for good reason, research by the Environmental Working Group has shown that three out of four homes in the U.S. have harmful contaminants in tap water. That's why I'm really excited to introduce AquaTrue. Their purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters. It's incredible. I can literally taste the difference in my water. Plus, the filters are affordable and long-lasting. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. That adds up to less than three cents per bottle. It feels great to know that all at once, I'm saving money, getting the highest quality water for the Finding Mastery team, and helping make a positive impact on the environment by eliminating single-use plastics all the way around. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and it even makes a great gift. And right now, because you're a Finding Mastery listener, you receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. So just go to AquaTrue.com. You spell it A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code FINDINGMASTERY at checkout. Again, that's AquaTrue.com. Enter the Finding Mastery code at checkout to receive 20% off any purifier that you buy there. Okay, how about this? What is your worldview? That's a big question. I'm curious where you might take that. There's a couple of ways, a couple of places I can take it, but um, I, uh, I've been speaking to anybody who will listen recently about a, I think the human centric worldview is um, much like the earth centric worldview in the 1600s. Of course you would go here. I mean, you're in squarely invested in microbiome well, and organisms. It, it, well, <laughs> this is, I mean it biologically, but I also mean it in more in, in there's other ways of, I think, uh, digging into this one. This is cool. Um, so it's, it's yes, from an evolution, per, I mean, from an evolutionary perspective, we, we are very rare. Organisms like us shouldn't necessarily evolve that often. Um, I get it. It's special. I, and, and, and more, more importantly, we are aware of the fact that we are special. And so that can kind of create this feedback loop of, um, you know, 
species speciesism or uh, i don't know species this is, this is something new to me too <laughs> spe- uh it's just like privileging one species over another for example cool. you know. speciesism species never heard of it Speci- yeah, let's go with it yeah, yeah. And so it's uh, a bias that our species is something special. Yeah, and I don't and, and most species. most of the times when I start this off, people will start rolling their eyes, be like, oh god, he thinks that like factory farming's bad and we're going there. And yes, I do think that that's bad just because it's a it's gross and you know it's it, it's a weird thing. It's also a weird thing to do. But um I understand when there's a purpose, like in medical research, I know why you'd put things in cages, but um, uh, you know, I'm not going there with this. What I'm going for is that I think that there's the 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 world is a lot more beautiful when you don't need to rely on um, self-constructed ideas of speci- of privilege um, or on the other end of the spectrum need to rely on some sort of divine basis um, or moral imperative for uh, for for purpose or for why for why you exist and, and what you should and, and should not do and it's uh, it's summed up really well with this with this idea that I, I forget who said it but it's like isn't the garden beautiful enough without having to believe that there's pixies in it too? And um, that's my worldview is 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 partially based in this idea that look like it's like every everything's amazing and no one cares, you know. And um, I think that when you start to find these common threads, you can synthesize information really well, and you have a technical and information-based understanding of the world around you and this my, my biggest issue is with pseudo-spiritualism because it has all the looks and feels of a truly valid worldview but it's devoid of a lot of the substance that makes those things fungible and so I just encourage I mean biology and and the the concept of like like even, even really simple things like how how evolution works you know like the concept about how things are constantly tested and then die. Evolu- people think evolution is this linear progression between small organisms up to more complexity. There's tons of very complex things that have, it's more of like a pulse. Like it goes out and then it contracts. And then what's left in the contraction blooms out and then it contracts again. And it's a nucleus out process instead of this like linear march through time. And that's what I mean when I say like, human centrism is uh, very much an extension of this like linear forward, the march of progress, um, industrial type of approach. And it just doesn't serve you from a mental health perspective, nor does it serve you for innovate. It doesn't help you for innovation. You don't come up with good ideas trying to, th- trying to look at the last iteration and figure out where to go in the tree from there. Um, and it doesn't help our, it doesn't help our planet. I mean, it's, Pretty close. We're pretty close to the next big mass extinction, which is entirely human-driven. And so, um, I try to be an evangelist. I, th- I think that connecting with uh, non-human life forms in meaningful ways is uh, just all around a pretty good thing to do. It's like one of those things that once you do it, a lot of other stuff just clicks into place. Mm. There's so much in there. Non-human life form connection, meaning plants and otherwise. Just life. I mean, life. Sometimes mm-hmm. it can even be with a. Uh, like animals, dirt, whatever it might like be. Like forms all, of all, matter. It yeah, can be with it can be with a body of water, right? Like it doesn't have to be with something which has a nucleus. And where does spirit, uh, spiritualism, religion, where does that fit in your worldview? Is it a um, artifact of people needing purpose and meeting, or is do you have a difference? No, look, I, I read. I was 
this is kind of a little bit more up your alley. So I've been reading this uh, article in a scientific journal. It's by, I think the lead author was from the Stanford School of Psychology. It's called Some Key Differences Between a Happy Life and a Meaningful Life. And um, look, I, in, in some ways, ha- happiness, so happiness and meaning oftentimes get conflated where happiness seems to be a, a feature of me being having meaning, right? Or when devoid of meaning, it turns into pleasure. That's usually how people orient themselves with those concepts. I think it's something a little bit simpler. I think happiness is a is a emotional state which is highly present or oriented in the present. I don't think that like even when you're happy about future things, when the moment like your Christmas presents when it arrives or a trip that you've planned like months in advance, the happiness isn't felt in that whole period leading up to the trip. It's felt when you actually realize it or in that moment of presence. So I think happiness is this very thin slice. People say it's fleeting as if it's a bad thing, but I think that's just a descriptive term of it. I don't think there's any judgment attached to that word. I think it's a temporary present oriented state. Meaning I think is a integration of past, present, and future um, in ways that if it's done correctly, you do also feel some sense of, uh, you know, happiness is a part of it. But there's, when people say, say, look for something deeper, look for something more meaningful, all they're saying is like living in a little bit more integrated with the different states of your, of your life, you know, and letting them all kind of reconcile together and deriving, um, fulfillment or positive emotive response from things that aren't present either fond memories or um time time with loved one or ideals of your future and so that's just kind of i think that um spirituality or religion are the most accessible forms of creating meaning in the way i just described it so i think that they'll give you a system Look, they check all the boxes. They give you a very long historical uh, series of events that led to what you are today that resulted in the creation of you, okay? They put you and your life experience at the center of your journey or path or whatever you want to call it or um, life. Um, and then they give you a big, big promise about if based off of the actions that you're doing today of an integration in some future sense that the cherry on the top is that it even links, but you'll then go back and see all your loved ones and people from your past life. And they bring it right back around to the past. I mean, it's the perfect, perfect story narrative for meaning in that sense. And it, it, it gives you, um, you know, I, I heard someone write about it a long time ago. I don't know if I'm going to offend people that are really religious that are listening to this. But I, that, that doesn't have any, I'm not making any value statements on what's right or what's wrong. I'm just talking about it from like the de- theoretical devices, how it's constructed. And um, look, like uh, I think there's a, it was, it was probably very important in times when um, the human condition was a lot less bountiful than it is today when most people would live in squalor or there's poverty was a and disease and um suffering and betrayal we're all i mean look at read any story from before even from up until 1960 or so i mean that was really the glory days right invention of antibiotics i would say is pe- pegged to it 
you know, but look, like even before that, like if you look at even some of these, like, have you read Beowulf? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's yeah. crazy. It's it. This is a uh, life. It wasn't tough, and certainly during the time of when biblical texts, in particular, were um, you know most most popular. That's there is a uh, you you would need some sort of external value system to help give you a sense, a reason to behave, a reason to not steal from your neighbor, right? Or a reason to not, um, to, to, to be just. Um, so I think that it makes a lot of sense. I understand where it came from. And I think that in some instances, it's had a lot of, uh, uh, a very quick accessible and immediately transferable way of helping people access meaning. And to that extent, I think a meaningful life is indisputably more rich than a non-meaningful life. Now, the question becomes, and, and to conclude the thought, are there ways of creating a meaningful life which are um, more customizable than uh, kind of a more out-of-the-box uh, set? So I think as long as the key attributes or features are felt, like you'll find people that have found deep, deep forms of meaning um, by connecting with nature. Na nature and evolution also checks those boxes, but it was... Uh, uh, I, when, when too much myth is put around it, it starts to become paganistic and too much ritual, it starts to become corrupted by the human touch. But in, in principle, I mean, a lot of these ideas about, look, my, my final thought on it is if you are only behaving out of fear that if you don't behave well, something bad will happen to you after you die. I mean, come on. You are clear in your approach. I mean, I'm so happy that I asked about your worldview. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. So um, you are in many ways a humanist, but then you also have this asterisk, which is, so religionism you're saying is dying or is escaped its utility. And you're suggesting that humanism is like, hey, listen, there's ways to create meaning and purpose that is more customizable, customizable than out of the box. But you also put an asterisk that, you know, we, <laughs> we, we also get in our own way by thinking that we're the center of the world and that there are multiple organisms and life forms that are available to us. And, you know, there's something bigger than just our own nine to five job. <laughs> so, you know, to oversimplify. So where do you go to, let's use that as a bridge and a link into the science, the applied nature of your science, which is, I'm fascinated with microbiomes, that we've got organisms that live in us and on us, and some are healthy, some are not. And the ones that are healthy, the two basic strains, maybe you can walk us through those, are fascinating as ways to manipulate or, I don't know, what's the better word here, to, um, maybe it is manipulate you know, better states of optimization by playing with these organisms. So walk, walk us through the applied science and why you're so excited about seed, your company, but also the application of microbiome. Yeah. So just for, to give some context to everybody. So the microbiome is the entire collection of microorganisms. It includes bacteria, it includes virus, it includes fungi, um, archaea, and uh, you, you get your first exposure when you're born is through, we believe, the mother's birth canal and through uh, breastfeeding. And a pretty incredible fact is that about a third of the carbohydrates in breast milk are actually not 
used by the baby as a food source. They're, they can't be broken down by human enzymes. And they're exclusively nutritive sources for back, developing bacteria in your early stages of life. And to kind of, if you think about how ex metabolically expensive it is to make that, to, when a woman's pregnant, she can't hunt, she can't forage. Um, you know, there's another life that's dependent on it. Uh, you know, it's, pr it's pretty challenging. It's, and her body's making organ, uh, is making the substrate for organisms for, or, to, for, for bacteria. Yeah. Crazy. You know? So yeah. to me, that's a, that's, it's a, it's a complete mind bending thought, which is, and are those lactobacillus? Is that those are bifidobacterium. Bifidum. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then. So can you walk us through the two of those? Yeah, oh, sure. Wait, hold on. Let's, well, sim let's simplify this thought first, right? Which is uh, the cost to make bacteria is enormous. And for some reason, we're passing bacteria. Mothers are passing bacteria to children. Well, they're everywhere. We're living in a microbial world. It's, it's a feedback, constant feedback. Everything you touch, everything you... Um, I mean, when you swim in the ocean, the ocean is after the... So uh, uh, extremely complex... Uh, community of microorganisms this is this giant broth right soil is uh as dense in some, in most fertile soils as dense and teeming with microorganisms as the human gut is and about a third of all the metabolites that are going through your bloodstream are made by bacteria that are living inside of you um this field of science has been implicated i mean last year um jerome reyes and his group in belgium published on people that have depression anxiety and found that they're deficient in two organisms in their gut in a thousand person plus cohort um one of the leading technology and biotech companies right now is is working in a phase two trial for neuro, for alzheimer's disease by blocking a bacterial metabolite from entering into the brain that induces the immune response i read both of those yeah and i'm telling you like my hair stands up when i think about have rev how revolutionized yeah. or how revolutionary this idea is that a living organism that's inside of us is required is the extrapolation that I'll make there required yeah. for health. Yeah. And, and I know that your, your backgrounds in cognitive science and psychology. And so as someone, I mean, I'm fascinated by the brain because we're starting to see all these things that we always thought are sterile don't aren't necessarily don't sterile anymore no it's way dirtier than that isn't yeah. it? It's, yeah and and so i i can't i i don't want to talk too much about the outcomes because it's still in in development but one of the things our company is doing is we're working with the nih um and we're conducting the first whole spectrum study to evaluate whether there's bacteria in the brain or not and um you'd be the first there we to to show it in human brain tissue yeah. we would be the first to pub look if, if it's there if it's that? not we're getting brain tissue samples from fresh from surgery from brain surgery people that have never had surgery before it's the first time that they're getting brain tissue for the last so it wasn't introduced by a foreign substance prior yeah, yeah so it's a first brain tissue that's you know it's it's of amazing. live humans not dead when yeah, the right. immune system breaks down and bacteria right. can infiltrate live human brain tissue for the last six months we've been collecting one to two samples per week oh my god you know you, have you heard the phrase air on the brain never the same <laughs> no yeah one of my friends is a neurosurgeon he's like mike once you open it up like people just change yeah. and we're not sure why but you know think about that thought air on the brain never the same so as soon as he cracks open a skull for all the right reasons that, and, and, and he does a beautiful job on surgery that the person fundamentally is not the same. Something happens. Yeah. Is it bacteria? 
I don't know. Is it, is it literally well, we'll air? Get, I mean, we'll get the answer to that because we're going to get enough that we can cluster people out that um, it's their first versus they've had it before. Yeah, so cool. we know that in it's sterile in our processes because we're controlling for it. Um, but next, hopefully next time we talk, I'll have some more, some more to share on that. But to kind of go back to the point, like it's, you name, you name it. It's, I mean, one of the research tracks in our company is on preterm birth. It's, I mean, millions of babies each year are born preterm and they suffering, have lifelong consequences and puts enormous economic and psychological toll on families in the healthcare system. And the solution could be as simple as changing the vaginal microbiome, which gives cues or signals to the fitness landscape of a baby when it's born back to the mother, to the host. And so we're, we're finding that, that the mission of our company is, is to look, have applications of bacteria um, where they can become or replace the primary standard of care. So we look for these through, unmet through medical ingestion? needs. Through ingestion? Through uh, oral ingestion? Not always, no. So Fe- Fecal ingestion? N- oral, uh, in some vaginal for our women's health track. For our oral health track, you induce colonization subgingivally. So wherever the target is, that's where we introduce it. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Yep. And then are you down to the level of knowing the strands that you think might have the most influence? Now we're way past that now. You so, are? yeah. So now, for example, in our women's health, in our women's health company, uh, over 50, the last 15 years, thousands of women have been sequenced, studied, observed, um, their medical and personal history has been tracked. Um, and we found over these thousands and thousands of samples, what's some, some key genomic features that separate stable and healthy from unstable and unhealthy vaginal microbial communities. So it's not just about knowing which species or which strain. And and that's like just your ticket to entry. If you really want to start altering these systems to improve human health, you need tons of data. You need to track people over long periods of time. And then you need to show that you can induce a long-term persistent change in that ecosystem after your intervention. And so these are things that aren't, you can't just do them very quickly. What do you think of probiotics that people go get at Whole Foods or fill in the blank, you know, health store? What do you think about that? Well, I'm very skeptical. I think most of the probiotics that are available in grocery stores or pharmacies are, um, well, I know what they are because they come from the same three or four manufacturers of uh, bacteria um, domestically. There's only a couple of them and half of them are relics of the dairy industry when they found that their starter cultures could be used in different ways. And you might experience some very moderate benefits from those, but the only real mechanism that we know is that they produce a little bit of lactic acid. And if that's what you're after, then you're better off just going for a yogurt or something else, which is not considered probiotic. It's actually considered a fermented food, and the two are very different. Why are why are most um, of the tested? I'm thinking of what's the yogurt, uh, Yokum? No, what's the brand? Yakult. Yakult. Yeah. That most of the probiotics actually have culture attached to them. The, the uh, ones that are tested. What's you mean? They like say there's X number of live organisms mm-hmm. or something like that. Well. Is it more of a delivery mechanism? No, no, no. I mean, it could be true, but that doesn't mean anything, Mm. right? So there's some strains where a very small amount, like a couple hundred million um, live live cells can deliver a therapeutic effect. Okay. And then there's others where you don't, they don't do anything at all. And so you find like hundreds of billions uh, 
because the idea is that by brute force they'll go. I mean, they're just, it's just guesswork, you know? By definition, to be a probiotic, you should have, your strains need to be studied in some way. And it doesn't, ideally, it's in a human population, but you have to have a mechanism, you have to have a feature, you have to have some desired outcome. Um, You know, there's, there needs to be some rationale for why that strain was selected other than the fact that it's just bacteria. So the idea that just being bacteria is enough to be considered probiotic is um, a marketing myth. So, Okay, cool. Because you bring up a, a point that I get concerned about is when some athletes are taking probiotics and there's um, you know, an enhanced lactic acid response that takes place, which is the last thing an athlete wants. I mean, we're doing everything we can clear to clear lactate. Yeah. Say, say it again. To clear lactate. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So can you just quickly speak about the dangers of athletes taking probiotics um, that have a, a high lactose inside of it? Yeah. I don't know. I, I'd have to, to my knowledge, a lot of uh, localized gut lactic acid doesn't have... Um, it's not a systemic issue. Doesn't have build, long-term buildup, or certainly, and I think most of the lactate clearance in elite athletes is um, actually aggregates in muscle tissue. It does. Yeah. So, so you're not going to find. Uh, it doesn't cross over. No, it's not going to cool. go from your gut and then start to clot, to build up in your muscles. So that's not a concern necessarily. Um, How certain are you on that? And I'm not trying to trick you, anyone, but like I've had the thought that that could be a problem, but I, I can't find research so, either way. On yeah. That. So what I can tell you is at least in our model systems, most of that lactate is used up very quickly by other bacteria or, I mean, most of it actually is just serves to lower the pH of your gut. Got it. Okay. And it, it doesn't, it's, it's not in sufficient enough quantities, nor does it make sense uh, biochemically for it to go. I, I mean, if it does, it would be a, a wild, uh, observation okay cool all right cool all right keep um, rolling keep rolling like stitch us into this <laughs> domain here like if we could flip into the psychobiotic category right like the gut brain health mechanism and if we can go if we could move from start with anxiety depression and then move into optimized states of flourishing yeah and where psychobiotics i'm sorry probiotics as well um play and how they play so i think that the only convincing study i've seen on depression or anxiety is look you'll find a bunch of of studies that have been done but if you if you look a little bit deeper they looked for 10 different things and they only found one in a secondary thing and they twist the study to say well um it worked on uh symptoms of depression on state on sad on sad mood uh, or, or mood reactivity, or they'll, they'll go tease out whatever of the 50 things that they asked about that got significance just right under the, the, the barrier. But nothing on the market has ac- actually been developed for um, depression or anxiety when given to a adult that we know of to date. I'm, I'm very hesitant to, to say that there's anything that has, has validity. And we've looked at everything and evaluated this research very closely. However, the Jerome Reyes paper that was published in Nature, these are, are not commercially available probiotics, but they could be in the future. And in this case, we there was it's, it's the perfect study design. So you look in, it, it's what we did with our women's health company, essentially, but for the brain. So you find thousands of people and you cluster them into groups and you see if there's anything between the two groups that are de- depressed or not depressed that's different. 
and then you control for all confounding variables. So in this case, you have to control for antidepressants uh, or anything else of the sort, SSRIs. Then you find what it is, say, okay, so in this instance, the bacteria that were deficient are two, two organisms called coprococcus and dialister. Then you go and see if there's, you probe the mechanism on what about these organisms could actually have a role in mental health. And in this case, they found hundreds of, bio, of neuroactive metabolites being pumped out and produced by these exact same organisms that we previously didn't know before. And this is more than just like GABA or, you know, serotonin. It's a myth that gut serotonin makes it into the brain because it doesn't. Um, all serotonin that's, that's used by the brain as neurotransmitters produced locally. Um, so what happens, um, the serotonin receptors in the gut, what's happening They're just there? used as local signaling receptors for a range of just like gut motility. And, uh, we don't know every single role that they're played. I mean, maybe it's possible that they send, uh, they can downregulate or upregulate certain genes based on being expressed, but we don't, that hasn't been fully investigated. Um, but then you go and now the next step of this research is now, so then you take those organisms or their metabolites and you put them back into people that have depression, anxiety, and you see if it works compared to placebo. And so that's kind of how good science is really done. No one's kind of, we're, we're the microbiome field is at the very early stages of most people are like either at step one or in some instances have now made it to step two. But all of our all of our paths in our company are at stage two now going back into stage three or have past stage three where you, you put it back into people and you show that it works for something. Very cool. So if people are struggling with anxiety or depression, what would you suggest when it comes to probiotics? Um, I would, I would not advise any probiotics for anxiety or depression. Um, unless GI disorder, unless di indigestion is a comorbidity, uh, and you find this in people like with autism disorder, where if you fix their gut, you have a tremendous effect on their quality of life because you've uh, removed like a deep-seated latent trigger for negative mood or emotion. Or um, sometimes you can get, if you have sti stimulation in your gut, it's pr processed by the body as anxiety, but it's not anxiety in the way that I think uh, it's diagnosed clinically. Okay. Okay. So then let's jump just a little ahead in there's two things I want to figure out. One is in the most simple terms, how does this ecosystem of gut work? Like how, how does this work? And then what can people do um, based on your science, but your product base to um, make their life better, enhance the quality of life. So I think there's very now, now to, to argue against myself, I think there's few things that people can do to improve their quality of life um, that are more effective than impacting your digestion because it's a daily physiological process. Um, some people just get so accustomed to the way that their system works that they don't actually realize that they don't have optimal or perfect digestion. I mean, in fact, with our, at least our first product is a cocktail of bacteria primarily targeting improve, improvements in digestion and there's a number of different markers that were evaluated. But what most people report is that I didn't realize that I was uh, had this or had that or indigestion or bloating or um, slow intestinal transit time or my stool consistent or I didn't have ease of expulsion or, you know, there's a number of different factors. And, and until you really adjust and take it and then you say, well, I just kind of uh, 
recalibrated and my baseline had become my current, my previous state. And then when you, when you try it and stick to it for a month or two or 12 weeks is the optimal period of time to notice, I think these changes at for least, a probiotic for, for a new probiotic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, most, I mean, most people like, uh, there's a very low, like placebo response past 12 weeks. Right. Because at that point it either, the sugar pill wears off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I think that it's important one. I think there's probiotics are one, but I think that like um, uh, magnesium is a really interesting uh, micronutrient that a lot of people are deficient in. Um, I think that uh, avoidance diets and some not to not to be too extreme, but uh, cutting out processed foods is a uh, is is a phenomenal uh, easy first first step that you can take. You don't realize those things affect you for a couple days. Um, off of just in a single acute dose. Uh, we just completed a trial right now where we looked at the effect of alcohol, ethanol in high quantities has on your gut barrier. I want to know nothing about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, I mean, as we start probing new effects that your that probiotics have on the gut, we looked at ethanol and we looked at antibiotics. And we found that our cocktail of probiotics has a rescue effect on the gut for after ethanol consumption and um uh, a resurgence in production of normal physiological function after d- acute dose of antibiotics. So we're starting to interrogate more and more ways. Which means if you have healthy or using your product or if you have healthy probiotic nature uh, or makeup, then when you take alcohol, there's a disruption. It's a disruption. Yeah. But there sound, sounds like there's also a benefit. Uh, no, it's the opposite. It's that if, if you take alcohol, uh, take alcohol. Uh, if, you, <laughs> if you consume ethanol, um, it, it'll have a disruptive effect on both your intestinal cells as well as your resident microbiome in the st- in the dosages that we studied. So equ- equivalent of in a twenty-four to forty-eight hour period of time, like um, between seven and nine drinks. So, so, how do people that want to also take alcohol? How do they, um, well, that's, so that's what I was saying. So we yeah. tested, we actually interrogated our, our hypothesis was that we know that our cocktail of bacteria work by, um, r- stitching up your gut barrier. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that previously we've, we've, uh, we've validated. So we wanted to see whether under this specific trigger, we could actually have a rescue effect. And by taking probiotics alongside these stressors, you could attenuate or improve uh, recovery time and on both of those endpoints we uh we saw a dramatic improvement that's what in, i thought okay yeah. very cool and so i always got i i didn't know the research on this so i'm glad that we're talking about this if i have to take an antibiotic which i don't want to if i have to take an antibiotic because whatever reasons also take a probiotic uh yes well you know what my thought was i don't want to take a probiotic while i'm taking an antibiotic because i'm going to promote the whatever bacteria, bad bacteria that I've got running around. Mm. And it's, a, I think it, it felt too simplistic, but you're suggesting if I'm taking an antibiotic at the same time, stay with the probiotic course. Not just a, I mean, to our knowledge, we are the first company to ever validate this mechanism in this way. So I can't generalize, um, but it is, uh, it's, and we're, it's, we're going to be publishing on this very shortly. So, awesome. Yeah. So you got some good, good data. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. All right. So then, Last last little bit here. I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for thank you for having me. This the, been the really quality fun. of this t- conversation. Um, what would you suggest people could do? And let's go two, three, four things, whatever, to improve the quality of their life. And let one of them be something that you have spent your life developing. You know your um, 
your products. Like I'm, I'm happy to understand that as well, but otherwise like that and otherwise, what would you suggest? Yeah, no, do? I mean, if I, I, as much as I love the, the company we've built and, and our first product, um, I don't think it's an appropriate answer to your question of uh, total life-changing, transformative things. Uh, the only plug I'll give is that if you want better digestion or GI function or have some sort of uh, uh, issue with uh, transit time or intolerance of certain foods or um, you don't have clean, one-log, soft, zero-to-one wipe stool bowel movements on a day-to-day basis and would desire that, go to seed.com and try the product. Um, but that's not an answer to your question. Uh, a couple things that I think all around would improve the value of, of day-to-day living is, um, this is a little hypocritical because I say it all the time, but I never do it. Um, but when I do do it, I just feel inc- incredibly good, uh, cold exposure. Mm. So a couple times we live in Southern California and so we don't get that here. We have a very basic, um, you know, kind of steady state temperature. And so, um, it doesn't have to be ice baths or cold showers if you're not tolerant of it. Um, but prolong let let your let yourself get cold. Um, in Iceland, they take their they take infants and they put them in strollers. And when the parents and adults are inside warming up, they leave them outside in the frigid cold. It's been a custom in Iceland for hundreds of thousands, if not thousands, of years. And um, this isn't just, this is based off of scientific data and not just ancestral or, or you know, historical, but I, I also just anecdotally I, and empirically, I feel phenomenal after exposure to cold therapies and uh, certainly cycling of uh, sauna and ice plunge and sauna and ice plunge as is done in Russia, it's, as it's done in most of all of Scandinavia are uh, associated with high quality of life and more just on less about kind of the longevity side of it, but just on your acute change in mood that you feel from exposure to cold and subsequent uh, return back to baseline. So try to get, in, try, try to expose yourself to cold a little bit more. Um, I think that like uh, diet and nutrition is a cornerstone of, of high, of a high quality life. Um, I would encourage people to f- completely fill their plates 70% or more with cruciferous green vegetables um, and then whatever you want to fill the rest with as long as it's not processed just do it just go for it and see how you feel you'll feel amazing um, and then the third is uh, digital detox uh, we um, we don't really appreciate and of course as a generalization but we're as a stimulus seeking beings which served an advantage prior to our um hijacking of those pathways in our brain, um, we were a lot more sensitive or I, I, if you, if people are familiar with like the concept of insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity, I think that we're becoming emotionally insulin, emotionally insulin type resistant in many ways. Um, and so by forcing a detox, you're actually giving more power to it than I think it deserves. The best would be digital ambivalence, but that's not really possible, uh, in the world that we live in. So aspire for digital ambivalence um but at least like uh purge yourself with digital detox when you can and nature is a really good uh thing that you can fill that void with i think awesome appreciate your brother like really well done i I, the depth of thought and the breadth of integration is refreshing and so thank you for your time i appreciate that i really do yeah thank you for your time thank you for the insights 
And then folks that are interested in um, seed, it's seed.com. 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 And um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching the trajectory of your company. Thank you very much. see when you go. Yeah. yeah. And um, I will send over all the f- fun, interesting things related to gut brain access that come across my desk because it's a, it's a hot field to watch. So. It is. Yeah. Appreciate you. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for diving into another episode of Finding Mastery with us. Our team loves creating this podcast and sharing these conversations with you. We really appreciate you being part of this community. And if you're enjoying the show, the easiest no-cost way to support is to hit the subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening. Also, if you haven't already, please consider dropping us a review on Apple or Spotify. We are incredibly grateful for the support and feedback. If you're looking for even more insights, we have a newsletter we send out every Wednesday. Punch over to findingmastery.com slash newsletter to sign up. This show wouldn't be possible without our sponsors, and we take our recommendations seriously. And the team is very thoughtful about making sure we love and endorse every product you hear on the show. If you want to check out any of our sponsor offers you heard about in this episode, you can find those deals at findingmastery.com slash sponsors. And remember, no one does it alone. The door here at Finding Mastery is always open to those looking to explore the edges and the reaches of their potential so that they can help others do the same. So join our community, share your favorite episode with a friend, and let us know how we can continue to show up for you. Lastly, as a quick reminder, information in this podcast and from any material on the Finding Mastery website and social channels is for information purposes only. If you're looking for meaningful support, which we all need, one of the best things you can do is to talk to a licensed professional. So seek assistance from your healthcare providers. Again, a sincere thank you for listening. Until next episode, be well, think well, and keep exploring.